If you have your Bibles, uh, please do me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, our focus this morning will be verses 11 to 12, but for the sake of context, I want us to read uh, that section from verse 9 to 12. Uh, as you heard, we are, we're back in our series on the gospel and our world, and in this series, we are covering certain topics that should impact uh, or where in the gospel should impact us as we uh, relate to this world. And this morning, we're at uh, and considering a comprehensive topic, and that is the gospel and our work. I'm sure you would agree that your work, your profession, your vocation is an important part of who you are. It plays a vital role of your life. Uh, for most of us, that's at least four, a fourth of our time every week is spent in our work. And for some of us, that's more than just a fourth of our time. Uh, and if it's true that the gospel affects everything, and that's what we're trying to communicate in this series, then no doubt the gospel should affect the way we work and the way we approach work, the way we work, the way we think about work. And so with that in mind, let's read our passage, and, and then I'll ask the Lord to help us understand this passage in light of our topic. This is God's word. Let's hear it. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is, for that, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Only so far in the reading of God's word, may you reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can again come into this place, that we can come to worship you and find our rest in you. Dear Lord, I acknowledge and perhaps many of us not acknowledge that this has been a difficult week, a trying week, a lot of disappointment, a lot of frustration, a lot of joy perhaps, a lot of delight in family but also mixed with, with difficulties. And dear Lord, in light of a week that no doubt many have had and a week that we normally have that's become routine Thank you that you've given us an opportunity to come and sit at the feet, at your feet, to sit at your word and to be instructed by your word. And dear Lord, as we approach this important topic of our work that consumes so much of our life, we pray that you would give us eyes and ears to hear your will for us in our work so that we would please you in it and that we would find the light through it. We ask that you help us, help me in my weakness, help all of us, keep our attention fixed upon you, and dear Lord, build up our, our faith so that we would work uh, and live for your glory, we ask. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start this morning by just simply asking you a simple question, and that is this, how do you approach your work? Tomorrow morning when you wake up and another blue Monday stares you in the face, what do you think and what do you feel as you face your work week? 
When you start Monday, when you approach your work, do you approach it and see it as a burden, as a pain, something you just have to do, something that's drudgery to you, something that you just have to do to get to the next weekend? When you approach uh, your work, do you perhaps approach it in a different manner? Do you see it as vitally important to you? Are you consumed by it? Do you find your significance and your worth in your work? So much so that you have no time for family or church or the things of God. See, when you approach Monday, when you wake up tomorrow, what is your approach to your work? Now, for us to rightly understand work, we need to go back to the beginning, as it were. We need to go back to our God who has created us. And what we need to see is that our Creator is a God who works. And how does the Bible begin? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we could paraphrase that. In the beginning, God worked. We see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, that God describes his, creative, his creation as his work. He says, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And on the seventh day, he rested from all the work that he has done. See, the one true and living God, the God who has made us in His image, is a God who works. And not only does He work, He is a God who delights in work. Seven times in Genesis 1, we are told that God sees what He has made and He calls it good. Genesis 1:31, and God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. It seems to be that, that God stands back and he, he, he delights in His work. He views it as good and, and takes pleasure in it. But wait, there's more. The one true living God who, who creates us, He's a God who not only works and who not only delights in His work, but He's a God who creates workers. Genesis 1, 28, after creating mankind in His image, God tells us, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's what theologians call the cultural mandate. That is to say, it, God mandates us to, to cultivate the earth through labor, through hard work, in order to create an ordered society, a culture that exalts our Creator. You see this also in Genesis 2.15, where God puts man in the, in the garden and tells him to work and keep it. Now remember, we are created in the image and likeness of God, which means there is a Godwardness about us. We are called to relate to Him, but also reflect Him. And so because our Creator God works, guess what? We are called to work. One author puts it this way, to image God is to work, and to work is to image God. See, we see there that therefore there is a God who, who works, a God who delights in work, a God who creates work. And, and we don't have time to get into it this morning, but there's a God who works, delights in work, creates workers, and calls them to rest so that they can appreciate their work. But we we'll, won't get into that this morning. There's a work-rest uh, uh, principle there. But, but what is the implication of all of this? If God works and delights in works and creates us as his workers, how should that affect the way we work and approach work and think about our work? Well, I think Tim Keller sums it up beautifully when he says this, when he describes the implication as this. Work matters to God 
and God matters to work. Work matters to God, and God matters to work. See, work matters to God because He is a worker who delights in it. But God matters to work because He creates workers who are meant to reflect Him in what He does. But see, at this point, it's perhaps important to also note uh, that, that, that we don't actually experience something of this at times. Our work isn't a delight as it is to God. Work matters to God and God matters to work. And if that is true, we ought to be God-centered in the way we work and delight in work. But that isn't often the case of us, with us. For most people, that's not the experience of work. Most people either don't delight in their work or they don't honor God in their work. And why is that? Well, fundamentally, it's because of sin, right? We know that work preceded sin, and so work isn't inherently sinful. It isn't a curse, but it's part of the fall. Work is nonetheless under the curse of sin. And so work that was meant to be delightful becomes difficult. Work that is characterized now by, by painful toil, Genesis 2.17. It's hindered by thorns and thistles, Genesis 2.18. And it's marked by sweat and frustration, Genesis 2.19. And the result is, instead of delighting us, work becomes fatiguing. It's frustrating. It even sometimes is fruitless. See, sin has affected work for us. But it's also affected the way we distort work. See, sin does a lot more than just making work difficult. No, sin fundamentally distorts work in our eyes and in our motives. There are at least two broad ways in which work is distorted for us. Two errors when it comes to work that are a result of the fall. And they are this. We either undervalue work or we overvalue it. Perhaps that's some of you this morning. Perhaps you undervalue work. Perhaps you work, your work means nothing to you. Perhaps you're working for the weekend, as it were, you, and therefore you work poorly. You work with much idleness. You spend a lot of time on social media in work hours. Perhaps you work as a means to an end, and that end is, is just leisure to earn enough money to go on vacation or to, to, to have a comfortable life. This has been the view of many, even from the early ancient days. Uh, Aristotle actually taught this. Aristotle taught that we work to have leisure and on, on which our happiness dispends. That is to say, we work so that we don't have to work. Perhaps that's not you this morning. Perhaps for you, you overvalue work this morning. Your work is your life. Your work is your identity. Your worth and meaning and significance is, is bound up with your work. Perhaps your, your work is, is what gives you a reason to get up in the morning. And Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that many sadly will have this tombstone. Born a man, died a doctor. What he meant, professions to define us. Perhaps your tombstone will say, born a man, but died a lawyer. Sorry for the lawyers, sorry. Born a teacher, born a, 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 whatever it is, a pastor, or born a man, died a pastor. That, doesn't, that makes better sense. See, see these are the two areas that, that we typically fall into. And we need to realize that both of these areas are fundamentally a sinful affront to God. Do you remember what I said earlier? Work matters to God and God matters to work. Both of these errors deny that truth. 
When we undervalue work, we deny that work matters to God because we treat work as if it's unimportant to God. And the result is we sin against God by disobeying Him, a God who commands us to work. But when we overvalue work, we, we deny that God matters to work because we turn work, we turn to work in order to define us, to, to, to uh, uh, give us meaning and worth instead of God. And the result is we sin against God by displacing Him, displacing Him with work. See, at the heart of both of these errors is sin, idolatry. Rebellion against God who has made us in his image to work and to delight in it and to find a delight in him who has called us to work. Now what is the solution to this sin problem? What is the solution to us distorting our view of work? Well, with the title of the series, I'm sure you guessed it. It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel. It's the good news that we are forgiven of our sins in Christ and made acceptable before the Father in him. That Jesus is, is therefore not just our Savior, but He is our Lord. And that reality affects everything we do, including our work, and it motivates everything we do now with new principles. And, and based on that, let's turn to our passage, because this is where our passage becomes helpful. Remember, Paul here is writing to, to young Christians. The gospel came to them not merely in word, but in power, the power of the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they, they turn from their idols to serve the one true and living God. And, and in this letter, Paul, uh, he, he, who didn't much spend much time with them, by the way, he instructs them on, on what the Christian life looks like, particularly in our passage, what the Christian view of work and vocation ought to be. And he points him to how the gospel actually should affect the way they live. Now, as we consider this passage, uh, there are just two things I want you to see this morning from it. Uh, the first one is this, our calling. Our calling. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He's been urging them to, to love more and more, and then he urges them to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now the terminology that Paul uses here is, is quite interesting. That word for aspire uh, was a word in the ancient world that had the connotation of, of pursuing something with great ambition. It had this connotation of fighting to exalt yourself. Competing not for the good of others, but for the good of yourself. Working ambitiously to be the king of the castle, so to speak. And Paul takes that word and he radically changes it because he follows it up with three verbs that go against the grain. He says, firstly, aspire to live quietly. That is to say, don't be combative, don't be disruptive, don't be competitive. No, pursue a quiet, peaceful, content existence. And how does one do that? How do you pursue a quiet, restful, content existence? He says, secondly, mind your own affairs. Don't be consumed by what others are doing or not doing. No, you carry out your particular work or business, your particular duties. Paul doesn't even clarify what those duties are. He just uses a, a general term for a person's responsibilities, all the things that they need to do in their lives. And then he follows that up with work with your hands. That is to say, don't be lazy, don't be idle. Uh, most commentaries point that he's saying, don't look down on manual labor. 
And the point is, give yourself to hard, industrious, diligent work. Now, what is Paul telling these young Christians? He's telling them that a quiet life, a peaceful, content life, is found in devotion to and diligence to God's calling in your life. Those duties, that vocation, those responsibilities that God has given you. Listen to Calvin on this, and I'm going to quote Calvin a few times this morning. He says this, this is the best means of a tranquil life. When everyone, intent upon the duties of his own calling, discharges those duties which are enjoined upon him by the Lord and devotes himself to these things. See, given this, Paul here exhorts these young Christians and us toward being faithful to their God-given vocation and calling. Realize this, beloved. God has not only called the Christian out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's not only called us and set us apart in Christ. But on top of that, or besides that, he's called us to a particular calling, to a particular place, a particular station in life. What Os Guinness calls a, a secondary call, which is a call to, to work or a vocation that God has placed you in. And it is the secondary call, this vocation, this calling that Paul is addressing in this passage. Another passage to consider is 1 Corinthians 7, 17. He says there, only let your Person, uh, uh, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And the idea is this. God has assigned and called each of us into a social situation, into an arena, a particular setting. And in that setting, we are sanctified by him to live for him. You know, a few things to note about this particular calling or vocation. And just as an aside, those two words, calling and vocation, mean the same thing. Uh, vocation is from the Latin voca, which just means to call. But, but notice, uh, what Paul, notice three things about this particular calling. This calling is, is undivided. Now, before the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church divided a person's calling into two categories. The higher calling or the lower calling? The, the sacred or the secular? The, the spiritual or the temporal? And the idea was to work in the church, to be a priest, to be a monk, is a higher sacred and, and spiritual calling. But if you were a plebe, a teacher, a farmer, a handmaid, you were just a normal, a lower, secular, temporal calling. You just had its temporal calling. We still see this in today's society, don't we? Many think that for them to serve God, they need to go into full-time ministry. They need to leave their secular employment and pursue the sacred. They need to pursue that calling which is spiritual. Well, the Protestants said nonsense. Listen to Martin Luther as only Martin Luther could say. It is pure fiction that popes, bishops, priests... And monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called temporal estates. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. Yet no one needed to be intimidated by it, and for this reason, that all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. 
Why? Because every single Christian is called by God and assigned by God a particular calling. Perhaps some of you need to hear that this morning. You may not be a pastor or a missionary. You may only be an artist or a technician or a lawyer or a plumber or a doctor or a street sweeper. You need to know that your calling, if it is good, is sacred to God. He has called you to that, and it is good on the basis of His calling. But note, secondly, this calling is not only undivided, it's unique. That is to say, each of us have a particular calling that is uniquely gifted to, to our situation and our abilities, to who we are. Paul speaks of minding your own affairs, which implies a unique set of duties that belong to you. I think the parable of the talents speaks to this, doesn't it? One is given five talents, another two, yet another one, and each one is responsible for what they've been given. The one with five talents is meant and expected to give back a five-talent performance, to make that and be faithful to that, that which he has been given. Now, this is important because all of us are different and unique. We all have unique giftings, abilities, opportunities, privileges, some of us are high-functioning business executives, doctors, lawyers, others, gardeners, secretaries, teachers, pastors. By no means is one better than the other. No, what matters is faithfulness to your calling. So the question that matters is, have you been faithful to the Lord? Have you served Him in your calling with your unique gifts, unique gifts and talents and abilities and opportunities? Listen again to Calvin on this. He says this, It is sufficient that we recognize our calling from the Lord to be the principle and foundation of good works in all our affairs. The one who doesn't frame his actions with reference to his calling will never keep the right course in his duties. He will perhaps occasionally do things that are praiseworthy in appearance, but his actions, whatever value they might have before men, will be rejected before God's throne. What, what's he saying? He's saying this, you're pleasing to the Lord not because of some outward show that the world admires. No, you're pleasing before the Lord when you serve him faithfully in what he has called you to. Wholeheartedly to him. So this calling is unique to each person, but, but also this calling is universal. That is to say, it affects everything we do. It would be perhaps better to say we have multiple callings, not just one. Paul tells us to aspire to a quiet life, right? Not just a quiet workplace. Now he's speaking on, 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 on he's calling us to a, a universal understanding of our calling that in every area that we live, every arena of life, from our workplace to our household to our church life to society at large, we are called to, to, to the Lord to be faithful to Him. Now, now, beloved, may I suggest to you, this should encourage you. This should encourage you because even the most mundane and, and insignificant and unglamorous work matters to God. Why? Because you've been called by God and work matters to God. Mothers, when you change that diaper unwillingly, 
but you do it because that's your calling as a mother. You're doing something that is good. This, by the way, Martin Luther said, changing diapers makes one holy. Uh, guys, with young families, we are holy. Gardeners, when you beautify a piece of dirt and shrubs, that is good. It's pleasing to the Lord. Lawyers, when you handle difficult cases with integrity, that is good. No matter your state in life, sweeping the road even, that is good because God has called you to be faithful in that calling. All work, no matter how mundane, no matter how unglamorous, matters. Again, if you will allow me to quote Calvin again, I think this is the last time I'm going to He says this, for every work performed in obedience to one's calling, no matter how ordinary and common, listen to what he says, is radiant and most valuable in the eyes of the Lord. See, dear friend, your work matters. Your vocation matters. Why? Because work matters to God. I suppose we could sum up this first point by that phrase. That work matters to God. See, this focus on our calling corrects that first error where we undervalue our work. See, because work matters to God, because God has given each of us a calling, we cannot dismiss work as unimportant. We cannot view it as a hindrance with drudgery. We cannot be satisfied with idleness and a poor work ethic. We cannot merely just work for the weekends. See, work matters to God and it should matter to us. And if it does, let me, let me suggest to you there is blessing to be had in it. There is peace and joy that you can find from it, not necessarily in it, but from it because you know you are serving the Lord. Listen to Albert Barnes. He says, no man understands fully the blessings which God has bestowed upon him if he has hands to work and will not work. What's he saying? He's saying work should be viewed positively as a blessing that God bestows upon us and to be delighted in as God delights in work. So that's how we correct the, the first error of undervaluing our work. Uh, we need to return to a, a biblical Christian theology of vocation that God has given each of us a particular call that we are called to be faithful to. But the second point I want to draw out for you this morning, and that corrects the second error of overvaluing work, is our cause. Our cause. See, in and around our text, Paul highlights various purposes or causes that ought to motivate us in our work, our vocation, and our callings. And there are at least four I want to draw your attention to very quickly. The first one is this. We should work in order to promote the gospel. See what Paul says in verse 12? So that you may walk properly before outsiders. See, we're called to be faithful to our calling, faithful workers in our vocation for the sake of outsiders, for the sake of those who are watching us so that they can see that our profession of faith actually makes a difference. We know that Jesus has said this, doesn't didn't he? Matthew 5, 16, he said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, our good works, which doesn't exclude our vocational work, is meant to bear witness to and draw attention to the fact that we do not serve ourselves, 
No, we are serving our Father. We're seeking His glory and honor. This should be our aim as it was with Paul. In 2 Corinthians 8.21, Paul says, For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Why? So that, this, that, so that their sight might be turned to the Lord that we serve. And what is true of bondservants should be true of all of us. Titus 2.9, Paul says that the bondservant should show good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. I think the point is simple. As we serve, as we work, as we give ourselves to our vocations, we need to work in such a way that brings beauty to the gospel. Jean Edward Vaith says this, the doctrine of vocation brings the gospel into ordinary life. Realize in our culture, and for many today, they care, more for, they care less for what you say and more for what they, what they see. That is, does your walk match your talk? And see, the way we work, the way we conduct ourselves Monday through Friday, the way we conduct our business and answer the phone and speak to employees and employers and suppliers and spend our time and quote clients and deal with those we meet, all of that is an opportunity to show the plausibility of the gospel, to show that the gospel indeed is good, true, and beautiful because it affects my life and makes me different to this world. And so we need to approach our work with a desire to promote the gospel. Secondly, we need to approach our work with a desire to provide a living. That's the second thing I want you to see, to provide a living. In the second part of verse 12, Paul says this, we are to be dependent on no one. At that time in Thessalonica, the Christians, for whatever reason, commentators speculate, but Christians became lazy and idle. And these idle Christians were depending upon the generosity of others so much so that they became a burden. And so Paul says, in effect, be dependent on no one. He's saying, hey, earn a living. Work hard. Return the generosity of others by not being a continual burden. He speaks out quite strongly against this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 10 to 12. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So what is clear then is that idleness and laziness are completely unacceptable for the Christian. A Christian is called to be hardworking, to give himself wholeheartedly to his work. But, but that exhortation also needs to be kept in balance with what Paul says elsewhere. Although we should work and not be a burden to others, we should also work in order to be a benefit to others, especially the needy. So in 1 Timothy 6, 18, 1 Timothy 6, 18 to 19, Paul says this, and he's addressing the rich. He says, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And, and beloved, this applies not just to the rich, this applies to the entire church. 
All Christian workers are called to be generous. In 2 Corinthians 9, in that context of caring for the poor, Paul lays this, this, this simple principle that God loves a cheerful giver in verse 7, which applies to our work ethic and our earning a living. As we earn a living through hard work, we shouldn't be consumed and motivated by purely gathering excessive wealth. No, part of our work ethic in working hard is to be a benefit to others, to help where we can. And this leads me to the, to the second or the third cause I want to draw your attention to, and that is as we pursue work, as we give ourselves to work, we need to pursue it with love. Now, where do I get that from? Well, look at verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Do you see our passage, verse 11 to 12, flows out of a command to love more and more. Our vocation, therefore, our calling, our living quiet lives, minding our own affairs, and working with our hands, all of it is meant to be motivated by love. All of it is meant to be an expression of love. G.K. Beale says this, love for God and one another inspires the doing of good works. But realize this isn't just a love for Christians. No, it's a love that flows out for all. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Paul prays and says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Now, now think about what Paul is saying here for a second. What Paul is saying here completely shatters the world's idea of work. For the world, work is just what you, you work in order to get something out of it. Work is just about earning a salary. For most people, work is just about getting what they can get out of it so they can spend it on what they need or want. But Christianity, on the other hand, is motivated by love. A love that flows over, not just for me and my family, but for my church, for my friends, for, for the love of all around me, for their mutual good. Martin Luther understood this. He, for him, the purpose of every vocation and calling is to love and serve others. He said this famously. He said, God does not need our good works, but our neighbors do. Beloved, that's how we ought to approach our work. It's an opportunity in obedience to God to love others and serve them for their good. See, God in His providence has given each of us a calling, a vocation. And in that vocation, we encounter various people in our society, whether it's customers or clients or, or employers or suppliers or colleagues or friends. In that vocation, we are given a unique opportunity to love others and do them good. In fact, Lester de Coster, in his book on work, gives this definition of work, which radically changes our idea of work. He says the essence of work is making ourselves useful to others. Is that how you view your work? Is that how you approach Monday? See, that's essentially what Paul is getting here. We work quietly. We work minding our own affairs, working hard out of a love that seeks to do good to others and is useful to others. And there are a few applications of this 
if I can digress quickly. The first application is an exhortation. There are some here who are wrestling with what to do in their lives, what career to pursue. They're figuring out what to be, what to do for their lives, young people especially. Well, may I exhort you, if you're a Christian, seek a career that is useful to others, not just a career that will make you money. No, what pleases God is not a selfish pursuit for wealth, but a self-giving, Christ-like pursuit to, to care and love others. And let me also just say, not all work is equal. Some work is less helpful than others. I'm not, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes, but I, I question whether wanting to be a game developer is really loving others. Games that lead others into laziness and neglecting important things. Let me, let me leave it at that. But also, other careers aren't equal in the sense that their end isn't the same. A photographer for weddings is doing a good job, but a photographer taking something for another industry isn't good. See, not all work is equal because work is actually meant to do, seek the good of others and to love. But there's another application of that, and this is encouragement. There's some here who think that your work is unbecoming, it's unimportant, it's insignificant, but if it's useful to others, it is good in the sight of God and you should find joy in it. You walked in here and the carpets were vacuumed, the chairs were in place. Why? Because someone did manual labor and they'd served you in that. That pleases God. See, as we work, as we pursue work, we should seek to please, to, to pursue love. Fourthly and finally, as we pursue work, as we give ourselves to work, we need to ultimately please the Lord. Uh, within the immediate context of our passage, our passage is about love, verse 9 onwards. But within the larger context of our passage, the passage is actually about pleasing God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. See, Paul isn't just exhorting these believers to work hard, nor is he merely exhorting them to, to love others. No, above all of that, he wants them and us to please God. He wants them and us to work in such a way that God is honored, to approach our work with a Godwardness. See, for Paul, not only does work matter to God, but God matters to work because we should do all for God. The God who has made us in His image to be workers that reflect Him. And this is abundantly clear in Scripture. Isn't it? Let me just give you one example, the example that Gary read for us earlier. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily, that is, sincerely, wholeheartedly, as for the Lord and not for men. That is, not for the approval of men, not to get something out of men, but to do it for the approval and honor and glory and pleasure of God, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the point? If we want to see work as a mere means to an end, then that end needs to be God. Not wealth, not comfort, not power, not self-worth, not inherent significance in and of myself. No, the end of work mustn't be work even in itself. 
Some Christians think that we must just work for the sake of work. No. No, The end goal of our work should be God. To serve Him and please Him and glorify Him. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, Bob Thune has helped tremendously here. He's a pastor theologian, and he gives a few pointers of how we glorify and please God. He says, we, he says God is glorified when we put ourselves in our work for God and not for man, Colossians 3. He says we glorify God when we are honest, in, even if it works, even if our honesty prevents a promotion, Psalm 15 and Genesis 39. We glorify God when we honor and submit to our superiors, 1 Timothy 6.1 and Romans 13.7. We, we honor and glorify God when we approach our work prayerfully, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We honor and glorify God when we avoid complaining and grumbling, to, or Philippians 2.14 and 15. And we glorify God and, and please Him when we simply and generously give for the good of others. And we glorify in God when we obey God even to rest from our work. And there are many things we could point out, but there are many ways in which we should be intentional in seeking God's glory and pleasure in our work. But what is the motive behind all of this? Because that sounds a bit hard, right? That's, well, that's a long list, Shane, and I only read like six of them. There's a lot more that we should be doing in our work. Well, how do we do that? What motivates that? Well, the answer is found in that small phrase in verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. That phrase in the Lord Jesus speaks of our union with Christ. It refers to what Oskinus calls our primary calling. Namely, we have been purchased through Christ, through his redemptive work for us. As such, we belong to him. We are called and set apart in him and in all that we do. We serve Him. May I suggest to you, if we remember our primary calling as we work in our secondary callings, if we remember that we are in Christ as we work in this world, then not only will we be kept from overvaluing work in idolatry, but all our work will be fundamentally be changed to worship. Why? Because we're doing it for the Lord. We're doing it to honor Him and glorify Him. I love this quote by Spurgeon. He said, The shop, the bar, and the scullery, and the smithy become temples when men and women do all to the glory of God. See, beloved, God matters to work. So given all I've said this morning, let me return to my first question. How do you approach work? When you wake up tomorrow morning groggy and fearing the week ahead, as you enter into another Monday, another week, what will be your thoughts and your feelings regarding your work? My hope is that we approach our work as an opportunity to worship. And to do that, we need to remember our Creator. We need to be faithful to our calling, wherever that is. We need to pursue godly causes. And above all, we need to look to our Lord Jesus Christ who in the work of redemption gave his life for us, may we in the work of our lives give ourselves to him. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we come to praise and worship you for your goodness and grace toward us. 
We recognize that in many ways we fall short. In many ways the world and its thinking and its actions and behaviors and thoughts and words become part of us. And it becomes true even at work where we become grumbling and discontent. We approach it as a means to a selfish end. Or we make an idol out of it. We pray that you forgive us. We pray that you help us to to have a God-honoring view of work. Help us to really understand and grasp that work matters to you and you matter to work. And may we do it all for your honoring, glory, and and pleasure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.